alert, alert, alert. We have another Whitney Webb episode. I know we just recorded one like six episodes ago, but she DM'd me over the weekend. She said, hey, Marty, I'm writing a series with my friend Ian Davis on sustainable development goals and nefarious attempts to power grab by the elite. And I'd like to come on and talk about it. And when Whitney Webb DMs you and says, hey, I want to come on and talk about what I'm writing about, you say, yes, of course. So I know she was on episode 353. This is episode 359. You can never get enough Whitney Webb. But we also sat down with Ian Davis, uh, her co-author for this series of articles. They've only written one. Go to unlimitedhangout.com to check it out. Uh, it's about sustainable debt slavery. I think that's the uh, the title of their piece that they just wrote, but there's going to be a series of these pieces going through the sustainable development goals. There's 17 of them. Uh, and yeah, it's really messed up what's going on out there. They want to control you freaks. These people hate you. They think you're dumb. They think you're complacent. They don't think you had the ability to see through the mirage of the propaganda that they're putting out there. It's pure propaganda. They use words like green, blue, sustainable, renewable, to make you feel like what they're doing is good for you. But it's actually bad for you. They want to enslave you. Think this is bombastic? Think I'm some conspiracy theorist? Listen to the episode. Whitney and Ian have done the hard work of actually diving in to all the public literature that's been put, in, been put out about all these sustainable development goals and really dissected it for you. And there's a lot going on. It doesn't seem too good. So... I think you guys are going to enjoy this rip. It was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but they've launched a trading desk. This is the best way to buy Bitcoin now. You can go to your Unchained account if you have one open. If you don't have one open, go to Unchained.com, open an account, spin up a vault, a two or three multi-sig vault, which you hold two keys of the two or three multi-sig quorum. Unchained holds one. But now... They've created the easiest way to buy Bitcoin out there. You set up a vault and then you simply go to unchain.com slash trading and you buy Bitcoin and it goes directly into your vault. No more needing to buy on exchange and then move uh, that Bitcoin to a wallet you can control. You don't have to go find your keys and uh, spin up a public address. You can now buy directly into your two or three multi-sig vault that you control using Unchain. It's available in 31 states right now. So go find if your state is eligible they're working on 50 states hope to have that relatively soon so everybody throughout the united states can can participate in this bitcoin buying mechanism um yeah if it's eligible it's the easiest way to buy bitcoin i've actually been testing it out myself and it's pretty insane you just buy and it goes straight to your vault you don't have to worry about getting your keys spinning up an address doing any of that stuff Unchain takes care of it for you buy straight into cold storage it's the best way to buy bitcoin right now go to unchained.com slash trading to check it out um their trading team is available to walk you through the process if you have any questions if you're not an unchained customer and you're looking to get on board and unchained.com slash trading the walk you through get you comfortable if you're a business high net worth individual or bitcoiner who cares about eliminating single points of failure highly recommend the unchained vault now Unchained Trading Desk. It's here. This rip is also brought to you by our good friends at Brain. 
brains. Maybe they've already gotten your brains. You sitting there on the couch, checking your fantasy football team. You setting your lineup. It's Thursday. It's Thursday night football tonight. If you set your fantasy lineup, are you not thinking about how the global elite are trying to take over your life and subjugate you to a life of debt slavery? Unreliable energy? Terrible food? Are you ready to eat the bugs? Have they gotten your brains? I hope not. I hope, like, when you, when you think brains, you're thinking of brains, the Bitcoin mining company, which is now Brains Pool. It's not Slush Pool anymore. It's officially Slush Pool. Or, excuse me, officially Brains Pool. Uh, they've got Brains Insights. They've got, uh, most importantly, the Brains OS Plus firmware. This is the good brains. This is the bad brains is sitting there, sitting in your fantasy lineup, thinking, oh, I don't even know who's playing tonight because I'm focused on the right brains. Brains with two I's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. I don't even know. Uh, who's playing tonight? I don't know because I'm focused on the right brains. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're an idiot. An idiot. Do you like me calling you an idiot? Does that make you feel bad? Huh? Does that make you feel like a lesser person? You can easily fix this by downloading Brains OS Plus firmware. An idiot proofs your mining operation. Only idiots wouldn't stack more sats if they had the opportunity to, and that's what Brains OS Plus firmware allows you to do. So if you're sitting there and you have an ASIC that's compatible with the firmware, and you don't have it downloaded, stop being an idiot and go download it. Go to Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com to check it out. So it was also... Brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform that leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to set up a two or three multi-sig escrow account in which you hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds one key, and Hoddle Hoddle holds a third key. I always put up four fingers when I get to the third key. I can't control my thumb. But aside from that, aside from my inability to control my extremities, um... Since you have one key in this two or three multi-sig quorum, you have visibility into the escrow account. You put your Bitcoin into the two or three multi-sig, you have a key, so you have visibility. You know your Bitcoin's not being rehypothecated or moving. You get stable coins in re- return, liquid tether, uh, and you know, spend those however you want. As long as you're paying back the loan plus the interest, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. And I mentioned interest. The interest rates on HODL HODL's lending platform right now are relatively low compared to the rest of the market. So if you're looking to take a loan out using your Bitcoin as collateral to avoid any tax uh, implications and you want a lower interest rate, go to lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer. It's pretty beautiful. Leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data, they're out in Lloydminster at some oil and gas conference right now. They got Premier, I think it's Premier's up there, I'm not sure think it is but they got premieres coming saying look at this innovative technology it's helping us reduce 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 methane leak into the atmosphere that's their hash hut i'm a hash hut owner i'm a happy hash hut owner my hash hut is a fucking beast because upstream data builds the best mining equipment in the world if you want to get a hash hut they have a 50 kilowatt 180 kilowatt and 900 kilowatt hash hut if you're a large upstream oil and gas producer, a large utilities company, or somebody is going out there and using small amounts of stranded natural gas. Upstream data is building the products that you need. You get a hash up, you get a generator or generators, depending on how big it is, uh, and 
Upstream will also acquire the ASICs for you if you need to get ASICs. Go to upstreamdata.ca, uh, go to their sales page if you're interested in a hash hut, uh, and tell them that TFTC sent you. Let them know. Let them know that we sent you. It helps the show out. They also have their black boxes for at-home miners. Want to mine at home without the crazy that sound. It gets annoying. It just nags at you. You put your ASICs in the black box. You shut the black box and it goes from to you can barely hear it. It's a beautiful thing. And it also controls the heat. As we know, these ASICs get hot. You don't want your house to be in danger. The black box takes care of that. So go to shop.upstreamdata.ca. If you get a black box, use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S. You're going to get 5% off the black box. Uh, And just like with the hash huts, uh, if you need ASICs to put in your black box, Upstream is there to help you acquire those as well. So go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to check out the black box. Go to upstreamdata.ca. Go to their sales page to check out the hash huts. Incredible products. Beast of a team. Beast. Last but not least, this rip is brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth who are trying to align uh, the principles that Bitcoiners are are pushing in terms of sovereignty, taking control of your life, your monetary life, and they're applying that to healthcare. If you want sovereign healthcare, you want to take more control of your healthcare, uh, which the opaque health insurance industry doesn't really allow you to do. It's a pretty big black box you pay and you get whatever service they're, they're willing to offer you with CrowdHealth. Uh, it's not health insurance. Uh, what it is is community-funded health care. Uh, you pay a monthly fee that goes into a dedicated bank account that you control. Uh, if you ever have a health event where you need to go to the doctor or get a procedure, you get the bill, you put it to CrowdHealth, you pay the first $500 of that bill, and then it goes out to the community, uh, and your uh, health care costs get crowdfunded. And then on top of that, you have a personal health advocate who is going to be with you through your journey with crowd health. The same person is going to be there for you when you have your health events and they're going to help you coordinate and organize and figure out which doctors to go to, uh, where to get your procedures. Uh, and on top of that, crowd health is going to negotiate prices lower for you. They, you have the ability to negotiate lower healthcare prices. People just don't take advantage of it because the health insurance companies don't care about you and they don't do it for you. Crowd health is here to do it for you. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC uh, and join their Bitcoin community. So you pay your monthly uh, subscription fee to CrowdHealth. It goes into that dedicated bank account. Now they have a Bitcoin community as well where you pay your monthly fee and a portion of that stays in cash in your bank account. Another portion gets automatically converted into Bitcoin and is held in parallel uh, alongside your cash, your USD cuckpuck balance. Uh, you're also able to accumulate Bitcoin in your healthcare account as well. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. The first thousand members of the Bitcoin community are going to get $99 a month for the first six months uh, of CrowdHealth usage. This is an incredible deal. My family's on CrowdHealth. We're using it. We're very happy. It's healthcare for the sovereign individual and healthcare for the future. You actually feel like you're um, somebody's on the back end caring for you. You're not just calling a 1-800 line waiting on waiting on what is it called uh, we, you, we just have to wait when you call and they're like yeah wait a half hour we'll call you back maybe and you get somebody who's in some call center doesn't really know who you are or care about you that's not the crowd health experience it's much more personalized it's much more advanced they have a sleek app it's beautiful join crowdhealth.com slash tftc enjoy enjoy it a lot i mean 
people are like, oh, it's only got 10 minutes, uh, it's intro. But I wanted to really preface this episode because it's important. Are you going to let them subjugate you? Crazy Uncle Marty. You're crazy, Uncle Marty. You're crazy. I think after you listen to this conversation, it's going to be hard to deny that there's some malintent behind the power grab that's going on with the UN, the big banks, the Rockefeller Foundation. You are the carbon they want to eliminate. Enjoy. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Brittany, back so quick. You were here a month ago. <laughs> yeah, but I'm back to talk about something else today. Uh, not the book this time. So, No, and this is something I'm actually very passionate about. Uh, I, I know we've talked about it before, uh, but this whole climate crisis fear-mongering that's going on and is trying to brute force changes across the globe in terms of how economies operate and what they can do with energy and what they can do with financing, ESG being a big, big theme. Um, that's why I'm excited to speak with you two. We're joined by Ian Davis as well, who is co-writing a series with Whitney that dives into the sustainable development goals set out by the UN and GFANS and this weird public-private partnership that's been brewing in the background for some time now. So uh, I guess I'll just throw it to you, Whitney, why are you guys writing this piece and what... uh. What do you think are the most important topics we'll cover today? Cool. So, um, yeah, so basically the series that Ian and I are doing is called Sustainable Slavery. The first piece uh, is out and it's called Sustainable Debt Slavery. And it's sort of an introduction to the idea of how SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals, also basically the same thing more or less as Agenda 2030, um, you know, are, are intended to operate in the sense of how they're going to be enacted or rather imposed on nation states. Um so this series sort of started because um, I found uh, Ian is like my favorite person to talk about public private partnerships with um, <laughs> because I think he has a, a handle on it um, that is like really easy to understand um, for people that, you know, don't work in this in this world necessarily and help explain it to, to a lay person. And so I stumbled across this thing. I'll just call it that. Um, it's so basically the UN backed mechanism to back SDG number three, which deals with healthcare. It's called UHC 2030. And it is, as of course, it's a public private partnership between the worst uh, actors in big pharma and, you know, major governments like the UK and Canada. I think the U S is on board as well. Um, and, you know, many, many other countries and it's going and it's the means of implementing this particular SDG. So I had Ian take uh, a look at it. And at the same time, I was working on a piece uh, aimed at another SDG that it deals with uh, ocean conservation, conservation. It's really a land grab <laughs> and debt for land swaps and stuff. Um, 
so you know it, it just seemed pretty obvious like why don't we just do an introductory piece and go hard on pretty much every sdg and dismantle it because this is it's all bullshit at least what they're selling it as <laughs> well you know? i'm happy you brought up the land grab for the ocean territory because that was actually one of the top comments in our last episode i think you mentioned it um the last time i recorded last month yeah. and somebody was like we need to dive further into that so hopefully we can do that today but i what i think was interesting uh something that really stuck out to me in your piece is that uh, a major driver behind these sustainable development goals is the climate crisis and you guys highlight that only one of the sdgs sdg 13 i believe has anything to do with climate yeah yeah, nominally. I mean, I think they, they cloak a lot of the other stuff. They like to bring up climate change a lot. But, you know, in terms of there's only one SDG that deals expressly with climate, climate action. Um, and the rest of them are all about other things. And, you know, it, basically the sustain the UN here is using sustainable as a synonym for transformative or transformation. And it's not the same thing obviously, at least how, you know, sustainable is being used because of how most people in the public conceive of the idea of sustainable. And obviously sustainable is preferable to unsustainable, right? And so that's part of why, you know, they're using that particular word, but what they mean is transformative. And they give that away a lot. You know, one of the graphics that, that is used in the piece is from the UN and is about the SDGs. And it says, you know, transformation and that, you know, it's all, it's all about transforming everything. And, you know, as, as Ian pointed out in the part he wrote in the piece, there's an SDG um, for literally every part of your life. And uh, Ian, if you want to comment on that, I'll throw it to you. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, agenda 2030, um, you know, the, 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 it states there that the basis of it is what it's all about is about transformation. That is, that is what they're seeking. Um, and the, yeah, and as Whitney says, there is, there are 17 SDGs, only one of which is specifically about climate. And, you know, there isn't a really any aspect of our lives, which there isn't an SDG for, which the purpose of that is to transform that aspect of our lives. And that includes the most personal, you know, there's sexual health in there as well, that, there's an SDG to transform that and to transform, you know, family planning and so forth. So, I mean, there isn't really any aspect that, that, that there isn't uh, a, an intention. Uh, and I think this is the key thing at a global governance level to to change our lives. And certainly with with if we look at I think it's SDG 17, which is about is which talks about the partnerships for for how we are going to be taken through this transition process is very clearly based upon um, what they're calling multi-stakeholder partnerships. But what that actually boils down to is private, private sector, multinational corporations effectively leading this policy agenda because, because governments are kind of relegated to the role of what they call creating the enabling environment, which means setting up the policy framework and also investment that will enable uh, the SDGs to, to, to be rolled out or to be achieved. And, and you know, and as, as Whitney was saying, is this, that this means a transformation of nearly every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And one thing you guys highlight in your piece is that the IMF 
which has historically been viewed as the supranational banking entity that is sort of separate from the private sector is going to begin merging with some of the biggest banks in the world, JP Morgan, HSBC, Bank of America, I believe are who you singled out specifically yeah. in your piece. And so this is part of that public-private partnership that is beginning to to spread. And I think this is an interesting time to jump into that particular relationship between the IMF and the private banks because that's something I've written about in my newsletter and talked a lot about on this podcast throughout the years is the IMF, by any objective measure, is terrible for countries that interact with it. I, I wrote a newsletter, I believe, in June of this year when Argentina went and took out uh, another loan from the IMF. Argentina, since 1944, has had an annual inflation rate since 1944, almost 100 years, 80 years almost, of 200%, 191% annually for the last uh, 78 years. Uh, in 1956, they started interacting with the IMF, uh, and since then, they've taken out 21 loans. And so you think if the IMF is actually going to be helping these countries, uh, Argentina specifically in this case, th th they would be on stable footing. They wouldn't have 191% annual inflation uh, if the IMF is actually here to help. And so I think yeah. it is weird that we're setting these sustainable development goals and we're trusting the IMF, and now the IMF in partnership with some of the biggest banks who have wrought some of the, the worst financial crimes and misallocation of capital in our society over the last few decades. And we're, we're essentially handing over trust to them to, to fix the world and transform the world. Right. So you brought up two separate things there, because I would comment on Argentina uh, a little bit separately, because that's a whole can of worms. I, I investigated at one point when I was doing a series for Mint Press News, and I didn't unfortunately get to publish all my research on it. Um, but it's my opinion that the collapse, the economic collapse in Argentina in 2001 was engineered by the governments it had dur during the 1990s. Um, and one of the goals of that was to intentionally force them to take out loans from institutions like the IMF because the goal was a debt for land swap uh, going way, way back uh, before Argentina's economic collapse. Even there was an effort to sort of get um, for bankers wanted Patagonia for some reason. And so there was this big effort for this debt for land swap. And even in the most um, past couple of years now, in, in name of the SDGs, actually, the, the current president of Argentina in talking to the IMF about debt restructuring talked about the idea of doing a debt for conservation swap, which is I, I mentioned a little bit ago is basically the uh, repackaged SDG version of the debt of, for land swap of yesteryear. It's a land grab, but it's being justified as you know, um, oh, this is for conservation, for climate, whatever. But ultimately, you know, the way <laughs> they're setting things up, something that could happen, you know, um, okay, you're, they're uh, setting apart this area for conservation, but it's going to be managed by a natural asset corporation. And that natural asset corporation, uh, you know, can d develop it ostensibly to conserve, but okay, oh, there's minerals found in it. Okay, they're going to set up a mining operation and that's not conserving, but they can offset that by buying financial products that allow them to trade whatever in carbon markets and offset uh, the environmental damage they're doing by, you know, moving those credits to somewhere else where they like plant a forest in the country on the other side of the world and all this googly guck. I mean, that's basically 
the system they're they're setting uh setting it up so the imf for a long time was it has been seen like you said as supranational but a lot of people have sort of uh, pegged it as being dominated uh by the u.s empire right, in this unipolar model uh following world war ii and actually there's this army manual that was leaked by wikileaks it's from 2008 and they refer to the imf as being um a financial weapon and they talk about it uh, also refer to it as being part of the global uh system of financial governance so it's considered a weapon of unconventional warfare and part of this global financial system and now uh, and we saw this in a big way with cop 26 last year you have larry fink for example of blackrock coming out and saying we need if we want to get serious about climate change we need to reimagine the world bank and the imf and that's also when you have g fans which you mentioned earlier the glasgow financial alliance for net zero which is basically mark carney and mike bloomberg coming together uh for financial hell upon earth <laughs> you know i don't know any other way to describe it they're they're basically saying let's merge the imf and you know um in the world bank let's reimagine them like larry fink says by merging them with private banks and making it all one big happy family. So that means essentially, instead of becoming unconventional weapons for you know US empire or the Anglo-American empire, whoever you wanna think of it, it's now the financial weapon of the banksters that are basically behind the whole climate, climate change, sustainable development agenda. And this multipolar world that we're gonna trans transition to. I'll let Ian talk about multipolarity. <laughs> he, has, he has some great articles on that, so. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced by the multipolar uh, new world order. I don't. I think it's kind of an extension. I think it's the natural transition, actually, of the unipolar world order. It's where it's got to go in order to make this this global transition to a new economic and new international monetary and financial system. In order to enable that, and it's something that the think tanks and the and the oligarchs have been talking about for a long time. There needs to be a, a transition of power from west to east because that's where the new emerging markets are, which is something that in G fans, if you look at what G fans is made of the Glo this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, a big, you know, it's made up of these different alliances. They call them alliances. Well, if you look at the alliance for, um, I think it's called the uh banking alliance I, I can't remember the exact title of it but if you look at look at that particular alliance the people in that are hsbc deutsche bank um jp morgan these these kind of banks are in there and one of the um goals of of that um is to set policy so to to inform policy through the gfans forum so when we consider that deutsche bank um last year or maybe it was a year before said that we really need to consider about what level of, di of dictatorship we will accept in order to, to move towards um sustainable development if we're as whitney was saying this common theme comes up that if we're serious about it then we really need to consider things like dictatorship which deutsche bank were openly discussing they are now informing policy through things like GFANS at a, at a global level. And that is what is going to be feeding into sustainable development. And I, I think one of the things that strikes me about it, and when we talk about the, the, uh, the concept of sustainable development, which most people probably believe, 
is that that it doesn't really matter whether or not you think that that sustainable development aims at somehow mitigating the impacts of climate change even if even if you accept that climate change as it's described to us by the quote unquote science um is genuine and that you know that we are heading towards some sort of climate catastrophe even if you accept that sustainable development is not the solution to it sustainable development has got nothing to do really with addressing the problems that that are that are said to cause um you know uh, you know that this this impending climate disaster for example you know carbon trading and carbon offsetting doesn't mean reducing the amount of co2 that's been put into the app being put into the atmosphere they admit that in their own stuff basically yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean that what it what it means is that the quote unquote big polluters can carry on polluting mm -hmm. to their heart's content as long as they offset it some way through what is already projected to be a 120 trillion dollar carbon <laughs> trading market which the banks love. Which, so of course, obviously, it's a new casino, dude. It is the new casino, and if you're Deutsche Bank, who are then part through G fans, are then, you know, at contributing towards the policies at a government level, and then and that's when we get down to the national government level, who are setting the policy environments or the quote unquote enabling environment to enable this this to happen. Then of course, if you're a, a global financial institution like Deutsche Bank, or I'm not, not picking on them particularly, but but any of them, that is a really enticing prospect. So that's that's really the nature of so-called sustainable development. Ultimate regulatory well, capture. Well, yeah, the other also, side of it is is turning everything into a commodity, including things that aren't currently part of the economic system. So that that's things like financializing what they call natural capital or the financial world, also human capital and social capital. And they've, they've even been pitching, I think, in, in outlets like New York Magazine, I think it was, like basically selling stock in yourself and like in your future and like how much money you'll oh. make after a time and like people can buy stock in in your life i mean it's it, it's getting that your favorite your favorite point. blockchain wants to do this ethereum wants people to be able to sell personal equity in themselves <laughs> favorite blockchain <laughs> yeah no but, but it's no comment <laughs> well i think i think there's a i mean i have a couple of things i want to say number one just the people involved, that's where I really want to get through to anybody listening to this. And hopefully you guys share this because I think it's important. There is a mass. I mean, the power that these people have already grabbed is incalculable. Insane. And they're, they're going for more and more. And it's just like you, Mark Carney, we mentioned him, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, Mark Carney and HSBC specifically. When Mark Carney was, I forget if he was the head of the ECB or not the ECB, the, um, the, um, uh, the Bank of England, or he was uh, part of the Canadian Central Bank. He, he was point. head of Canada's and England's Central yes, Bank. Yes, he's been head of both, but when HSBC had their Mexican drug cartel crisis where mm. they, they got caught laundering money for the Zeta cartel uh, and uh, the U.S. Treasury tried to essentially 
uh, shut down HSBC, but Mark Carney stepped in on behalf of HSBC and basically said, hey, just slap him on the wrist with a fine. So there's some terrible um, uh, moral hazard uh, just with Mark Carney specifically being a public sector banker at the Bank of England or uh, the Central Bank of Canada. Yeah, but he's the guy that you and put in charge of all this shit. Right? Well, yeah. so that's, this is what I want to highlight. Like, these are the people running all this stuff. And then yeah. Deutsche Bank, Whitney, as we've talked about in past episodes, I mean, they were openly um, allowing Jeffrey Epstein to use uh, yeah. their, their bank to wire hundreds of thousands of dollars after he had been um, pr- imprisoned and, and let free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now they're how they're trying to work. Hey, together. Now they have an ocean resilience philanthropy fund that, yeah, they're big in the ocean conservation market now. And it's a market. It's they're calling it the blue economy. And Deutsche <laughs> Bank is trying to be at the center of it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so dumb. I mean, you read the stuff that they're promoting, the, the groups involved in this, including Deutsche Bank's philanthropic arm. Oh, sorry, did I cut out? You're good. Um, yeah, like Deutsche Bank's a, a philanthropic arm. They're like, they'll say stuff. It's it's business as usual, but they just put blue in front of like the word loan or any other financial product. And all of a sudden it's part of the blue economy and it's really good and it's sustainable development. And it's great for the environment. Blue loan, blue, blue bonds, you know, blue investing. It's all it's all great now well, because great we put a primary right? color in front of it. Yeah, <laughs> well, so I good. mean, this goes back to like what you were getting at with the word sustainable. It has this connotation yeah. that people just, uh, just take for granted. Like, oh, sustainable. Exactly. That's good. We should be going towards it. Blue. Yeah. It's a good color. Green. That's a good color. It's not red. It's not orange. Uh, it's not black. <laughs> so yeah, we should definitely that's, go forward. That's the with level this. of mentality, though, that they expect from us, right? They don't expect us to actually think about all this stuff, and they admit so much in like their own documents about it. Um, but they think they can just get people because they view most of us as like kindergartners mentally. Yeah. Like basically subhuman on, on some level. Um, and, you know, they've gotten away with so much over the decades. They're like, well, we'll just you know, it's not going to be a hard sell because they, they're not going to think about it or really look into this stuff. Well, um, so yeah, I, pretty much been right so far. I do have to wonder when I it's, it's interesting that you should say that, because when you read through a lot of this documentation when you read through a lot of this stuff i do think because it's some it's just junk isn't it i mean a lot, a lot of it you read it and you think well how could oh, yeah. anybody ever think that that was a good idea and i think you're right i think it's pretty i think it's predicated upon their perception that no one's going to read it the only people that are going to read it are people that are you know obsessive about it perhaps like people like us and and <laughs> and you know each other as a kind of signal that this is the roadmap that we are we are going to use, you know that that that's they're 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 relying on the fact that well, with good reason they can rely on the fact that the mainstream media are going to report it. I mean that's so they they can they can know that that's not going to happen, so they can just put any junk in these statements and think they can get away with it. But I I just just wanted to to. Uh, add something while we were talking about the multipolar world order where we're heading with the multipolar world order i've recently been doing a bit of research on that transition and i just wanted to i'm talking about mark carney who is also who is also the uh, he's a trustee of the world economic forum he's the un special envoy for climate change 
and he was a he was also a board member of the financial standards board and i mean it just goes on and on and on with carnies in absolutely everything yep. but this is this is this is what he said and i've got a, i couldn't believe this because i reread this talking about the multipolar world order this is what he said at jackson hole in 2019 so he's talking about this de as destabil this is a quote from his statement a destabilizing asymmetry at the heart of the imfs international monetary and financial system is growing while the world economy is being reordered the us dollar remains as important as when bretton woods collapsed in the medium term policymakers need to reshuffle the deck that is we need to improve the structure of the current imfs in the longer term we need to change the game any unipolar system is unsuited to a multipolar world. In the new world order, a reliance on keeping one's house in order is no longer sufficient. The neighbourhood too must change. A multipolar global economy requires a new IMFS to realise its full potential. That won't be easy. Transition between global reserve currencies are rare events. It's an open question whether a new synthetic hegemonic currency would be best provided by the public sector, perhaps through a network of central bank digital currencies. A okay, if we say a synthetic hegemonic currency might smooth the transition that the IMFS needs. The deficiencies of the IMFS have become increasingly potent. Even a passing acquaintance with monetary history suggests the centre won't hold. Let's end the malign neglect of the IMFS and build a system worthy of the diverse multipolar global economy that's emerging. So when people talk about this new multipolar global economy and world order that we are we are heading into, it has been planned over the last 20, 30 years as as the destination. That's this this is where this is where we are heading to. So the idea mm -hmm. as well that it presents some kind of some kind of bulwark against globalist ambitions is is just and, and china and russia are fully on board of course with sustainable development well actually they said that just recently um putin and, and g are meeting um i forget in which country on the sidelines of some conference i guess and uh, uh, i saw earlier today you know uh, clips from their respective speeches and they're saying we want to build a you know unipolar world is increasingly dangerous we want a multipolar model that's just and fair and they emphasize the role the central role of the un in that and everything we're talking about right now is coming from the un yeah um and and then you know they bring up sustainable development multiple times so you know they are totally on board with this stuff and they had a joint statement um, a few months ago that you wrote about Ian, where they basically said it back then, but they're still saying it. Um, and that's why I think this, you know, it's so important to go into what the UN is doing because so many people conceive of the UN as, oh, it's just a meeting of all the different public sectors of the world, um, you know, and they don't realize the influence of the bankers, the multinational corporations and all of that at the UN. I mean, maybe some people do now in the COVID era because it became common knowledge, the role of, uh, Bill Gates, for example, in financing the world health organization. Right. Uh, but you know, the UN does not operate the way a lot of people conceive of it, uh, as, and so them talking about the UN being the center and, you know, all of this crap we're talking about 
Russia and China are on board with it because if we know this stuff, they know this stuff, plain and simple. And this whole war going on right now could just be a big distraction too. Um, well, I think it's, a uh, you know, with Ukraine, you're just seeing a big real reallocation of capital and weapons. Uh, basically, what's, you know, all these all these weapons are going to Ukraine, but only 30 percent are actually going to Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front lines. Where is the 70 percent going? And why is no one trying to find that out? Um, and the same thing with the money. How many billions has the Biden administration pumped in, into Ukraine? And we're, we have to pump more and more and more. I mean, and you have the German foreign minister basically saying, you have to like freeze your, your butt off this winter <laughs> uh, because I want to deliver for the Ukrainian people and I don't give a flying F what the German voters think. You know, that's extreme. Europe is literally shooting itself on the foot on purpose. And this is, in my opinion, a pre-planned reallocation of wealth somewhere else. And Ukraine is just the laundering point for all of it. You're having arms trafficking going on and, and money laundering going on. And the question is, where is that money and where are those weapons going? Um, and not a lot of people are really interested in finding out the answer, but it very much could be related to this reallocation of power that we're talking about, this whole shift to a multipolar world. The unipolar world is concentrated or has been concentrated in the West, and they're doing a, a, a controlled demolition of the Western economy right now and the standard of living. Why yeah. is that happening? Yeah. And they're doing it on purpose because they know the sanctions aren't hurting Russia. I mean, it's obvious. It's been obvious and they haven't changed. So why not? Yeah. I mean, it just came out this morning that one of their largest oil producers has had the most profitable quarter it's had in decades. And yeah. and yeah, Europe shooting itself in the foot. It's another focus of this show is the energy policy that's been enacted by the West. Where Like, why would you spin down completely clean and carbon neutral nuclear power plants in favor of unreliable sources and then become wholly dependent on Russian natural gas as well. Uh, but I think we should dive into the UN. And I think before we dive into what they're actually doing, uh, we should go back to how it started, because that's one thing I mentioned to you both before we started recording, which you highlight in your first piece in the series is that the UN, uh, like you mentioned, everybody views it as some um, public partnership of the governments around the world that was just started out of the goodness of their hearts, but there's actually private entities that helped get it off the ground, particularly the, the Rockefeller Foundation. That's uh, something I was completely unaware of before reading your piece. You want to take that one, Ian, or I, I can do it if you want. Yeah, no, I, yeah I mean, the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation were... Actually, the two interesting things, the Rockefeller Foundation have been deeply involved from the pre-war period, going back, you know, before the before the Second World War, are particularly involved in the development of what we might call global governance through the through what was then the League of Nations, but also very heavily involved in China. So the Rockefellers have been instrumental in, you know, in, in building up the Chinese economy as well. But that's a kind of a side issue but it's a, no, a notable parallel. But the, but with the League of Nations, the, I think that there was a perception after, after the Second World War that the League of Nations had failed. And the Rockefellers were particularly involved with the, I can't remember the name of the, do you remember, Whitney, what were they called? The, the um, I, can't rem I can't remember the name of the UN body, that the, that, that, or sorry, the League of Nations body, but it was something to do with global government uh, development yeah, I'm not familiar. But that, but they, but that was the transition. That was kind of the transition point at which the League of Nations 
was was changed into the um what it's now you know the united nations and the rockefellers not only funded that department entirely they 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 were the money the money there wasn't there wasn't any government money in funding that department that basically more or less became the un secretariat as the as the secretariat is now that was entirely rockefeller funded so it, it now it isn't now it is funded by the contribution of member states but it wouldn't have been put in place had the rockefellers not been pushing it and, yeah, and, and the other th sorry Karen, no, Karen. Well, I was just going to add that the Rockefeller family also donated um, the land, the money to purchase the mm. land in New York City in which the UN headquarters sits in New York. And that's the only reason the UN headquarters is in New York is because of the role of the Rockefeller family there. So they, they have a lot of influence and they've been involved in global governance and pushing for global governance and specifically the global preeminence of public-private partnerships since the 40s, if not earlier. And so you see a lot of influence there. And this is a family also that historically has funded things like eugenics. They're very interested in setting policy, particularly in the developing world, because they want less people in the developing world. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on <laughs> when you're talking about the Rockefellers, but someone like David Rockefeller, for example, in his memoirs published in the early 2000s, basically admits that his whole family has been pushing for a global governance system for a long time. And people confuse sometimes the idea of one world government, global government with global governance. And uh, Ian has a really good way of explaining that, um, the difference and why it matters. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that governance um, is more about policy agendas rather than setting specific hard and fast policies. So you create the policy agenda generally through the global financial institutions working in tandem with the international think tanks. So they create what a, a broad policy trajectory of where we want the end goal for policy. Where do we want this to where do we want this to lead? And then that can be then disseminated through organizations like the international the imf and through the world bank and so forth that can then be disseminated to national governments and it's at the na it's the national government level at which those policy agenda so we're not we're not talking about you know saying you will do this and you will do that but rather setting it setting a framework for policy development and then policy development at the national level is that's when it gets through obviously through legislation and through policy commitments that's when it becomes um hard and fast policy that affects us yeah so there's a, that's government so 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 government is obviously the the hard rules that we that we are subject to but they just set a globalist agenda which is why you get things like for example, everybody saying at the same time, build back better, because build back better comes from a document called the the, the Sinai. Uh, it, it, it was a, a, a again a, a, a global uh, policy agenda document called the Sinai Preparedness for Disasters. I, I can't remember the, the, the full title, but it's in that, and that was written in 2015 that the first, that we first see them using this term build back better. So that is a UN consultative document through UN debt, the, the UN, um, uh, in, you know, through UN consul consultation. They use that term, and then suddenly that gets suddenly that gets picked up everywhere by every politician and every leader because that is part of the agenda 
governance agenda rather than being a specific policy that that gets interpreted in different ways in different countries yeah so f- from an american perspective you have agenda 2030 which is trying to get us to net zero carbon emissions uh, that's the agenda and then recently here we had the inflation reduction act which is the green new deal sort of trojan horsed through that piece of legislation where people were like yes yeah, sign the inflation reduction act we're tired of high prices, but it's really just a Green New Deal um, marketed as an Inflation Reduction Act. So you have the agenda set, and then uh, the government here in the United States passes the Inflation Reduction Act following that agenda. Exactly. Yeah, but in the U.S., they they disguise it as something else because they don't want to say what they're actually doing. So like, like you pointed out, it's basically climate policy masquerading as inflation reduction. Uh, one of the things that Bill did, for example, was create a national green bank. And I forget the name, but it's a, another lending mechanism that's supposed to be one of the biggest public-private lending mechanisms for quote-unquote green energy in the world. And it's going to expressly benefit one of the main lobbyists of the Inflation Reduction Act, Bill Gates, who actually is taking credit for getting that bill passed. Uh, Bill Gates created something a couple years ago, and his partners in it are people like Jeff Bezos and BlackRock. It's called Breakthrough Energy Catalyst, or BEC. And they basically stand to get most of the money from the National Green Bank in this lending program. (laughs) Um, Lovely. Yeah, no, no, but really, um, it's it's no joke. Um, And the whole idea here is, you know, a lot of people on the left, for example, like support this policy. They think, oh, yeah, solar panels, whatever. This isn't going to be a kind of world where you're allowed to have a solar panel on your roof and power your own house with renewables. This is where they're making... They're going to make like power plants of renewables, but the owners are going to be Jeff Bezos, <laughs> BlackRock and, and Bill Gates. Um, and it's going to be, you know, rationing energy usage uh, based on, you know, your how much carbon or whatever else you're consuming in your lifestyle and, and stuff like that is is how that system set up. But it's centralization of, of energy. So, OK, it's quote unquote renewables. Um, but you're not going to, it's not decentralized. It's going to be complete centralization of, of energy. Um, and, you know, energy and food are basically what um, power civilization. Yeah. So if you control the energy, which breakthrough catalyst, breakthrough energy catalyst is now going to do by using our own taxpayer funded money against us, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, they're going to take control of energy through by having all that money funneled to them through these mechanisms that were passed in that bill. Um, and then you have at the same time, the same people like Bill Gates buying up all the farmland in the U.S. So they're going to control the food, too. Yeah. And then BlackRock owns all the houses, too. So And, and they own all the houses. And we're <laughs> going to become a nation of renters, says Bloomberg. By the way, Bloomberg, you know, Mike Bloomberg, you know, co-founder of G-Fans with Mark Carney. It's the same very small club. I mean, it's even smaller than the 1% that we were all complaining about in 2008. This is like the 0.001% playing for keeps and taking it all. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're dealing with right now. And it's totally mental because they're getting away with it. And there's yeah. people on the left that are like cheering on stuff like the sunrise movement that are like, they're not even saying implement these specific policies, Nancy Pelosi. They're like protesting and just take action now, any action. I mean, that's great. Greta Thunberg's whole thing too, basically, you know, and, you know, we don't have time to think about how we solve it. We just had to do something or there's going to be this climate disaster and we're all doomed. 
so implement something fast and here are these ready-made solutions and oh look it's the bankers that have made it all and all these people and you know oligarchs and it's going to create you know this crazy system where no one has control over their own lives and um pretty much everything important is owned by in an extremely small number of people and they're only getting away with it because people are not looking into what's being offered to us at all well they're not looking into it and then they're leveraging fear with the climate crisis people are afraid yeah. they're like do something and actually it's a bit of a tangent but i i uh finally realized the contradiction with bill gates particularly uh he wants the world to transition to renewables, particularly solar and wind, but focusing on solar, Bill Gates is also the same person who earlier this year, blot out the sun. exactly right? earlier this year, he was trying to blot out the sun <laughs> and he also wants to transition to solar. It's like, how do those two things compute? It doesn't make any sense. So like that small contradiction there, large contradiction uh, highlights to me that this really isn't about a sustainable future. It's more about control. And like you said, energy and food are at the lowest substrate of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and what crises, things. yeah. And what crises do you have now in the West? Energy. And, energy. Yeah. and who's going to build back better when people are demanding for solutions to the crisis that's to come in the coming months? Yeah. It's already there. They've already set it up. And in the U S the inflation reduction act was, the big step towards that. And like, no one's covered that story that I've really seen. Um, no, oh, am I back? I no, you're back. You're back. Sorry. But yeah, no, the inflation reduction, it's, I mean, pure Orwellian doublespeak because it's uh, everything in yeah. that bill is just going to exacerbate <laughs> inflation. They're, they're trying to like in the act, they're well, trying it's, to it's instill like price stuff. controls. It's like price controls never work economically. They just cause prices to go up. Yeah. So it's like this stuff with the SDGs. Um, all the stuff, all the existing economic woes of today are fine, according to the UN, uh, and debt, economic crises, all of that can be included under sustainable development because if we don't implement the SDGs, they promise us uh, that the economic crises that await us are infinitely, infinitely worse, and the debt that await us are infinitely worse than the debt uh, that will be part of sustainable development. Yeah. That's that's one thing I think, again, we need to get through to the audience, the broader populace at large, is that these policies are going to kill more people than they pretend to save. And yeah, and, it, and it's debt slavery, and that's why the title of the article is as such, because they, they admit debt is a critical form of financing for the SDGs. They are going to drown countries in debt. And well, then use the IMF and the World Bank and all of that stuff to be like, oh, having problems with your debt, I see. Well, impose these specific policies that are all, you know, SDG uh, related and designed by bankers. One other thing I should say about the SDGs is that they all have like these phrases attached to them that all sound really nice and utopia, utopic. You know, like everyone can get behind ocean conservation and, and free health care for all and no poverty and no hunger. Yay. But the U.N. has specific sanctioned programs already in place under all of those SDGs that are already setting up the policy and the infrastructure to implement said SDGs. And that stuff is, is what we're talking about here. Right. And a lot of it doesn't it's not actually going to produce what the phrase of the SDG says it's going to produce. It, that phrase is the justification for the entity hiding behind that SDG. So in the case of like SDG three for like healthcare, you know, that's UHC 2030, 
And that's what's hiding behind that STG and the idea of, oh yeah, free health, you know, available healthcare for everyone sounds nice. And we can all, you know, everyone should have healthcare. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but they're not, but you know, accepting that keeps people from scrutinizing what's hiding behind that. And that's what the, how the SDGs are essentially operating. There's all these pre-planned and, and pre-designed entities hiding behind these utopic phrases of the SDGs that are something else entirely in every single case. And SDG 17, which is basically the focus of this piece, is partnership for the goals. But in researching this, I found an old graphic that they were using, and apparently the name of it used to be strengthening the implementation of the goals, right? So <laughs> that basically is like, um, yes, a yoke of debt around your neck, and that is how we will strengthen our implementation of these uh, unattractive policies at the end of the day. Well, and it's debt. It's debt slavery. Oh, yes. And what's even more evil about all of this is, again, going back to they like to play the feels and use positive connotation and positive messaging. And they're attacking the developing world, too. They say, hey, we're going to help uplift the, uh, the, the global the south framing. out of poverty. Uh, and so let's dive into their plans to use debt to just land grab in these third world countries that are trying to pull themselves up from the bootstraps. Yeah, sure. So I'll actually bring up um, the one that I mentioned earlier. So the Nature Conservancy, you may know of this because the head of the Nature Conservancy right now is Henry Paulson, formerly of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> the Treasury ATMs are going to be out of money by Wednesday. Print a trillion yeah, dollars. And uh, we'll declare martial law unless you bail out the bank's Congress. That's Henry Paulson. So Henry Paulson is, is, is in charge of the Nature Conservancy. They've launched a new arm called Nature Vest which is all about investing in natural capital. So right. uh, in November of last year, NatureVest embarked on its uh, pilot program. Uh, and the title of their press release is the government of Belize partners with the Nature Conservancy to conserve 30% of its ocean through debt conversion. Already sounding nice, isn't it? They say innovative project as part of a groundbreaking Ground, uh, sorry, groundbreaking global plan to fund ocean conservation while providing fiscal and economic benefits for coastal nations, right? So this is the pilot program. It's going to go global. They're going to throw um, a bunch of money in the ocean and call cons conservation? No, it's actually worse than you think. So um, I don't know if you've show notes, but I'm happy to send these links to you so people can see. Yeah, we'll put um, everything on the show notes. Here. So, so this global program, the Nature Conservancy calls it Blue Bonds for Ocean Conservation, and they describe it as an ambitious plan to drastically scale up durable ocean conservation around the world. And uh, this is quoting them. This conservation model is an innovative strategy to work with governments to restructure a portion of their sovereign debt securing long-term sustainable financing for the management of valuable natural resources. Um, and basically what happened here, if I can pull up their case study, they made a little PDF of it. Um, this is from their transaction highlight section. So basically what happened uh, per them, Belize repurchased 100% of its super bond to refinance its debt at a 45% discount. 
a nation uh, a nature conservancy subsidiary provided the blue loan to finance the repurchase uh dfc which um is the uh, United States International Development Finance Corporation provided political risk insurance wrap on the blue loan. Credit Suisse financed the blue bonds, which funded the National Conservancy subsidiary to make the blue loan. Yeah, Belize committed to achieving marine conservation targets and using a portion of the financing savings to fund conservation over 20 years, part of which is prohibiting local people from fishing in their own waters. Lovely. Wow. Yeah. So, you so get, this is just the start. You get debt this restructuring fees, start. you get underwriting fees, and then you cut people off from food sources. Yeah. So I'm writing a piece specifically on the ocean stuff, and this is crazy, but this is just one part of it. There's a whole organization uh, that's basically mostly bankrolled by Deutsche Bank, the UK government, and the Canadian government. And their whole thing is 50 unique financial products to conserve and protect the world's oceans. And it's, it's, it's just a crazy casino while also being a crazy machine for land grabs in the developing world. And a lot of these pilot programs are expressly in Latin America. And there's a reason for that. And they're probably going to be in Africa too. And uh, the same people behind a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, uh, these oligarchs, a lot of them Silicon Valley oligarchs, they're very interested in mining right now mm -hmm. and securing mineral resources for the coming so-called electrical vehicle revolution and really more broadly the smart city construction which requires all of these insane batteries lithium and cobalt if you look at a startup that's um pretty much all the silicon valley guys together uh gates bezos zuckerberg reed hoffman of linkedin um and, and several others they have this thing called cobalt metals and you oh, cobalt sorry and you mm -hmm. go on their website they're like we have to find every reserve for lithium and cobalt in the entire world and secure it because otherwise we cannot bring you know the ev revolution electrical via electric vehicle revolution to fruition and right? again and so I that means all of the andes all the way down, including national parks. There's a huge cobalt reserve in a national park down from where I am in Chile in the Andes. And they're all, this is supposed to be national park territory here. They've already, they're already creeping and mining into it. They illegally drained a lake by my house to start strip mining uh, the side of the lake in the mountains. And there's literally a national park less than a mile away. And a ton of people live there. There's a tourism agency around that lake. They just stole all the water. Nothing's happened to them. And this is going to keep happening all over Latin America because the mining here is so predatory and so insane. Um, it's just madness. And it's going to be the same for Central America too, because they have mountains. I mean, they're, they're just, this is a resource grab to, that is literally going to destroy the developing world like we've never seen before. And that's why they are cloaking this with environmentalism, because if people actually knew what they were going to do to the environment, there's no way they could sell this. There's no way they could sell it. Um, and they are getting the countries on board. This, these are with governments like Costa Rica, Belize, you know, they're getting the governments on board and they're selling it to the people as we're going to lift you out of poverty. And they're selling it as a left wing project. A lot of these countries have had U.S.-backed uh, right-wing um, leaders for a long time that have been, you know, in the case of like Colombia, for example, involved in narco trafficking and like other stuff, or you know, um, allowing multinational corporations to pillage 
local people's wealth and stuff. And so they're selling it as a left wing thing where, you know, uh, we're going to do what Evo Morales did in Bolivia. We're going to pull you out of poverty, but that, they're not going to do anything like that. They're, it's just a selling point. And they're going to just take it all. And that's what they're doing here. Mm -hmm. So these debt for land swaps have a long history, but they've cloaked them now as debt for conservation swaps and debt for climate swaps. And this has been going on in a huge way. Ian and I were talking about the other day how 15, I think it's all actually, of the UK's national parks are now part of a public-private partnership. No one in the UK voted on this. It just happened last year. Yeah. And it's basically a land grab too. So yeah, your national parks in the UK aren't pri aren't public anymore. Uh, it's a public-private partnership that's financed by Santander Bank and Estee Lauder, the Lauder family. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean that's mental. And there's no coverage of this crap, and no one on the left is talking about it. They're asleep at the wheel, or claiming to be environmentalists, and they're enabling literally the worst destruction of the environment ever, and the worst pillaging of the developing world that's ever happened. And it sucks for me too, because I like I live in South America, and this is literally happening in my neighborhood. Um, and I think a key part of this agenda too is that they want to depopulate here, so because people would protest the mining, and you know all this stuff comes together. I think there's a reason why Latin America, you saw, I think more than any other continent in the world, mandatory vaccination policies. You know, you had Ecuador and several other countries like literally make it mandatory to get the COVID vaccine and stuff. But anyway, that's like a separate, separate issue, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think it goes hand in hand, to be honest. Um, and there's a lot of really dark stuff that's to come if people don't wake up to this agenda. Yeah. Ian, did you want to jump in and say something? Well, really, just to, just to support what Winnie said, because the ambition of this is, is staggering. It is staggering. Mm -hmm. They are talking about basically financializing the earth and every, everything on it. I mean, I, I looked at something called the theft of the global commons. So that the, the idea is that the things like the global commons, which are, you know, that you see that mentioned specifically in agenda 21, but also in lots of lots of documents about conservation and the earth and nature broadly define the global commons of those things on earth that no one specifically owns at the moment. For example, the Andes. Now, now some people own parts of the Andes, but no one owns the Andes, right? Well, that's, they're talking about financializing, for example, the Andes. So making, making that uh, uh, what they're calling a natural asset. So, what I mean, what does that create? It creates water sources. It creates, you know, it has an environmental impact in and of itself. So that will become a service. That will become a natural service for which, which can then be licensed, and you can buy and sell the license for that natural service. So, if you're yeah. gonna, you're going to do something like a, an open strip mine on the side of a mountain. Obviously, that's going to have an impact on conversation on, uh, on conservation. So that's going to have an impact on, on sustainable development. But that's okay because you can still do it if you can negotiate the license with whoever might be might be funding yeah. that. So you negotiate the license, carry on strip mining anyway, but offset your your sustainable so you can actually i mean as as has already happened in china this has already happened in china this is 
there, there are a number of coal-fired power stations that have been built in China, which because they were using uh, less harmful uh, coal-burning technology, were paid for with UN Sustainable Development Grants. So these, these, are, these are brown coal-fired power stations paid for under the auspices of sustainable development. So that, that gives you some idea of what this is really about. And it has got absolutely nothing to do with protecting the environment. It's got nothing to do with conservation. It's nothing to do with nature. The idea is to sell nature as a as a service which can be licensed. That That is what this is about. And one thing I want to add to that. So, Ian, you brought up how this is also about financializing the processes of nature. So it's not just mountains, rivers, lakes, whatever, right? Literally, the ecological processes that underpin all life are going up on the market. And this includes stuff that, like, you know, you put your body in the ground when you die. That's going to be, you're going to be charged for that now, you know, in this world they're making. The, process, the ecological process of decay or anything else, the ecological process by which water is purified by the earth or any of that. I mean, this is all you're going to be charged and it's all going to be part of this new crazy economic system. And who do you think that benefits? I mean, they're framing this as like pulling out of poverty, the third world. I mean, what a joke. Um, it's disgusting. It's, it's madness. It's totally disgusting. It's an, it's just as anti-human as the transhumanist agenda. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's anti-nature, but, it, you know, the transhumanist agenda, a lot of people, you know, are pointing out how anti-human it is. But what we're really facing is more than anti-human. It's really anti-life, like I mean, all life. Yeah. I mentioned this is in, an effort. Yeah. I mentioned in the beginning of our last episode, I know um, you may not agree, but I think it's demonic. Like, I think there's like demonic evil forces behind all this that are really pushing this forward. And just again, the blatant contradictions going back to... Bill Gates, Reed Hoffman, Zuckerberg, and their cobalt initiative. Like, we have a testing ground here in the United States. It's called the state of California for all these hypocritical and contradictory policies. Like, we, like we've already seen what happens when they phase out reliable nuclear and natural gas in their state uh, in, in favor of wind and solar. And just two weeks ago, the state of California was begging its citizens not to charge their electric vehicles. And so if you play that forward and this green transition is successful, like we're digging up all this cobalt and all this lithium for this EV revolution. But if we have a transition to these quote unquote green sustainable energy systems alongside that, like you're not even going to be able to charge your electric vehicle. Yeah. So, so I would make a distinction really quick. I don't think it's even just, the green, I, I think it's how they have done the green energy transition as opposed to the technology of the green energy itself. So they have intentionally set it up in a way where they're not prepared to afford people the same standard of living they have now with the amount of renewables available. And that's intentional. That's intentional because they're trying to reduce the standard of living. The electrical vehicle revolution is not to enable uh, renewable powered driving patterns as they exist now in the United States. It's to enable uh, basically uh, an Uber system for smart cities only. 
it's not to enable like cross interstate or cross you know across the nation road trips or anything like that forget about it with the with the ev stuff it's going to be way shorter trips and that's by design and here's the thing when you it changing how energy works you know you this i think again ties into the depopulation agenda if you're able to restrict how much energy a person can consume you're restricting how much economic activity they can engage in and you're restricting how big their family can be yeah yeah and that's why it's happening this way people are writing it off as incompetence it's not incompetence it's the plan that's i mean that's been a big discussion on this show too i have a lot of people on or it's just pure incompetence these people think they're doing good bullshit it's not incompetence they know exactly what they're doing they know exactly what they're doing yeah if you if you look at if you look at things like net zero policy if you look at that there is no way that that can work with a population, the population that we have at the moment, running our lives as we do at the moment. Two thi- one of two things have got to give. Either we live much smaller, much more confined lives, or there are just simply less of us. Because if you look, for example, at things like co- cobalt, currently there is no evidence at all that there is sufficient cobalt on this earth to power even something like China's car use, that there isn't any evidence that 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 cobalt actually exists. So the idea that we can all all trans we can all kind of start be driving around in electric cars is utter nonsense. It's not true. So with with current technology, of course, I mean, if there's some sort of technological leap forward that comes forward, but then, you know, who knows? Why why would we imagine that that's the case? Based on current energy usage and based on current technology and based on the availability of resources, it is fair to say that what the sustainable agenda means is a massive reduction, as Whitney says, in energy use by us well, there's only there's only two parts of that equation, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. It's and then it, I mean, it can't be incompetence. I mean, so much has been written off in incompetence in in world history. Take like nine eleven for example. You know, <laughs> written off as just pure incompetent and all this other stuff. Hey, I mean, too soon. We just had the, we just had the twenty first anniversary earlier this week. Oh, we can't uh-oh, talk about sorry. That right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, twenty one years too soon. I guess my bad. So, uh, but I mean, it, it's constantly used as, you know, same with COVID-19 written off as incompetence, the lockdowns, the toll of the lockdowns, they knew, everyone knew, well, except the people, you know, a lot of the people in the public, but there were critics and skeptics from the very beginning who were sidelined and ignored and now they're backpedaling. But I mean, it was known what it was going to do then. Yeah. Right? And then you had the vaccine rollout which is becoming glaringly obvious was probably a bad so idea. So when you're just saying they're incompetent, you're absolving them of any sort of criminal intention. Yeah. So you're just saying, okay, the world is run by idiots. And I would say, no, the world is run by professional criminals. Yeah. I wrote 900 yeah. page book about why that is so. <laughs> um, and I think I make a pretty good case for that. It'll be I mean, on if you think it's all soon. incompetence by... Right. Well, cool. Yeah. So if, if you think it's all by incompetence at this point, how come everything's so coordinated between these guys with these policy agendas if it's all just by chance incompetence? Yeah, you know? I tend to 
I tend to lean towards it's very nefarious and calculated. And well, the more you look at it, and the more you look at these people, they're not stupid. They think you're stupid. Yes. If if you look at the if you look at the public health response to to COVID nineteen, and I and I've looked at it particularly obviously from the from a UK perspective. If you look at what the government did, every single one of their policy responses increased the mortality risk. Every, every single one. So if it was incompetence, you would imagine that a couple of their policy initiatives would have improved the or reduced the mortality risk. None of them did, not one. Every single one increased the risk. So that seems to me like a concerted effort to increase the mortality risk. That is that is what they've done. So for example, in for example, the the UK government told the NHS to abandon what it called its NHS standards framework. Well, that, that meant that the NHS could discharge people without assessing first whether or not they've got an ongoing care need. So that increases the mortality risk. They then ordered the NHS to discharge every single patient that wasn't basically critically ill. That increased the mortality risk. They then sent them to care homes where they withdrew primary health care support. That increased the mortality risk. It's every single policy decision, one after another. They introduced midazolam into the care homes that the GPs were prescribing without seeing patients because they couldn't go to the care homes. That increased the mortality risk. They gave, they gave midazolam to elderly, vulnerable people who they hadn't even assessed what their pressing health condition was. That increased their mortality risk. It, it was. It's not unreasonable to say, and I'm more and more coming to the conclusion that what we saw, specifically in the UK, but I think everywhere, everywhere, was a cull of of the most vulnerable, a deliberate cull to to give not only just, and I don't know whether it was necessarily purposefully to cull people, but I think it was to obviously that creates the impression of. A dangerous pandemic if you possibly can so you need people to die so what we're going to do is systematically roll out policies that will induce people to die that that is what happened in my view here's another example of incompetence jeffrey epstein's quote-unquote suicide and the fact that the guards were asleep the cameras didn't work and all this other stuff that happened to enable his quote unquote suicide where per the official story in his like suicide risk, you know, uh, paper thin bed sheets, uh, he hung himself from something that was shorter than his own standing height. So he had to curl up in, a, in the fetal position and dangle himself from something that was paper thin. Yeah. Uh, so that's the official narrative and the guards being asleep, the cameras not working all written off as incompetence. Okay, yeah. so if you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, then you can't really buy the incompetence argument for these people. You know what I mean? And I think that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big meme at this point. So, well, you know, there's no shortage of examples to say the very least. And the more you actually bother to objectively look into the stuff, it's very hard to write it off all as incompetence, especially things like, you know, in economics and finance. 
economic crises. Pretty much every economic crisis of the past several decades has been a a wealth transfer to the same people over and over again. Is that incompetence? Or is that that's a hell of a coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, it's happening right now as we speak as well. Sure, mm. COVID was another wealth transfer. Policies specifically designed to enrich who? I mean, you look at the Federal Reserve's policies, a good example would be uh, the work of John Titus at Best Evidence over on YouTube. I mean, he's pretty much shown that the money from the Fed, who'd it go to? Checking accounts of the ultra rich, basically. Yeah. Check out his last videos. I mean, it's mental. Whitney, yeah. we've we've discussed this many times on this show, but like, what the hell is it going to take to wake people up to actually begin fighting back against this this utter evil that exists? Because it's only like they're only getting more emboldened. It seems with these SDGs and yeah, you know, the, the so commoditization uh, of first the oceans. Thing, First thing, don't be afraid of these people, because if you're afraid of them, they have power over you. I think that is like a good starting point. Um, another good starting point is to start dismantling all this fairy tale stuff we're being told about what's happening and the solutions we're being offered right now. Um, that's why Ian and I are doing this series. We think this stuff is really important and is very undercovered. I don't really know anyone doing deep dives on the SDGs right now, except for us. <laughs> or financialization of nature, except for Corey Morningstar, who um, doesn't publish very frequently and uh, should be much better known than she is. Um, but there's very few people uh, working in this space. And this is an agenda with a lot of t more money behind it than most other agendas at this point to transform every aspect of our lives. Why aren't more people talking about it and looking into it? Um, and so part of this uh, is tied up with taking responsibility for ourselves. We have to know what these solutions, quote unquote, solutions are that they're foisting upon us really are. We have to take the time to educate ourselves about what's really going on here. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of different things we can do, um, too, in terms of getting off of the digital, you know, control grid as much as possible. Uh, CBDC should be a red line that no one watch it, listening to this podcast or watching it should cross. As soon as you start participating in the CBD, CBDC system, you have given yourselves over to it because you're a slave to convenience. You have to get off it. You can't be part of that system. Yeah. Do you guys have any hope that what they're trying to do is just getting too heavy and it's going to collapse in and of itself because it's just way, they're going for way too much, way too fast. Like I think COVID and the response to COVID and the vaccine rollout was way too much way too fast and i think that has a bunch of people startled like wait what the fuck did we just do unfortunately i think we're now at the stage where they are at the destruction phase of you know they they don't they're at the they're at the point now where where what happens to us has become if you if you look at the purpose of propaganda the idea of convincing us to go along with all this stuff obviously they care about what we think but, but but they're at the point now where they are creating circumstances, and I would suggest that the sanction response to the Ukraine war is a, is a classic example of that, where they are creating circumstances which are in and of themselves going to be so, going to have such a massive impact on everyone's lives that people are going to be, regardless of the propaganda, people are going to be, so embroiled in just trying to make it through the next day that they're not going to have time to think about challenging this agenda and if and if and if they if the government tells them that this is all putin's fault 
whether it is or whether it not, even whether they believe it or whether they don't, they're not going to care because they're going to be too busy thinking about how they're going to put food on the table. So that that is that is the level at which we're at now. And I think, you know, this is this is why yeah. the solutions are not going to come from, in my view, the solutions are not going to come from us, one, continuing to listen to them. If we if we continue to listen to them and continue to do as we are told, then that can only lead us one way, and that is towards basically the evisceration of our societies. So what what we need to do is start thinking about each other and start thinking about what we can affect now in our local communities. How can we? If if you've got no health service in in your town, if you if you can't see a doctor's appointment, if you can't get a doctor's appointment, if you can't do any of those crucial essential services that are being taken away from us every day, then what is the point of appealing to the people that are taking them away? There's no point in doing that. What we have to do is work together to replace those services. So we need to, and that's already starting to happen, thankfully, in there's a there's an organization in the UK that are looking at building not it's it is going to be a private system it will have to be a private system and people will have to contribute at a private level but we need to ta- take start taking responsibility for those essential things because the mm-hmm. the government that we elect is serving a, the global what i would call the parasite class they are serving the bankers they're not serving us anymore. So we, the, the way that we are going to be able to fight this is to take increasing responsibility for everything around us. We have to take that responsibility. And as, increasingly, as we do take responsibility, I mean, we were talking just now about whether it's incompetence or whether it's planned. It doesn't really matter, does it, whether it's incompetence or whether it's planned? Because if it's incompetence, what's the point of them? And if it's planned... Who would listen to them? So, so we need to start. We need to start taking responsibility for everything. Everything, it, it, you know, our food, where our water, our water sources, our health services. Yeah. We need to run them. Taking the power back starts with yourself and your family, and goes from there. Yeah, it goes from the local level up. And that's what we have to do for too long. We've been waiting, I think, especially in the West. Well, really most of the world, we've been psychologically conditioned to wait for a political savior to come fix everything. Decades and decades and decades and decades in the making. And there's a bunch of people now in the U.S. that see this stuff coming and they're like, "Okay, Trump 2024. No way. We don't we don't we don't, you know, uh, you guys remember Operation uh, Warp Speed? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have. No, uh, we cannot wait for that person and even one person coming in they're not going to let that person get to you know number 10 or the white house or whatever it's not going to happen yeah that political savior has to be us we have you know a lot of people are failing to realize you know it also happens with like the debate about is the multipolar world order a good thing people see russia and china as the good guys or they're the heads of their government g and putin as good guys and the the west is evil and and stuff like that or or the reverse of that is also true okay so no the good guys are just the regular people this is an us versus them thing and the them are the 0.001 percent that are doing all the stuff we've been talking about today 
Yeah. So if you want to get on the side of the good guys, that's building a parallel system with your neighbor. It's not going to the ballot box uh, and voting for some dude who clawed his way to the top of some deeply corrupt political party. Yeah. Completely agree. I mean, yeah, I know, you know, this waiting out. Yeah. And I'm not sure what your thoughts on Bitcoin are, but that's what, that's why I'm focused on Bitcoin particularly because it allows us to create this parallel monetary system and financial system that's being erected on top of it. And we have things here in the States that are beginning to pop up, which are very positive to see like the beef initiative where uh, there's a real movement that's beginning to grow where people are getting encouraged to go meet their rancher directly and buy directly from their rancher instead of depending uh, on, on the large slaughtering warehouses here in the United States. And no, I completely agree, but that's the one thing I worry about, like how complacent, dumbed down, fat and happy have people been lulled uh, over the course yeah. of the last That's few the decades. That's the big question, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think I mean, currency is going to be... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ian. No, I was just going to say, I, I think it's really important that we accept that we need to rid ourselves of our obsession with convenience and comfort. Totally. Because... because, because that sort of quality of life, that, I mean, it, 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 that often erodes our quality of life. We end up sitting on the sofa watching somebody skate around on an ice rink, thinking that that's, you know, a, a quality of life. That isn't, that isn't. The quality, the quality of life, I would suggest, comes from the quality of our relationships with each other and the, and the, the things that we do that we get for a sense of fulfillment out of a sense of achievement and that's we come from that by overcoming adversity not by not by sitting around being bored and looking for the next big thing or getting a better phone i mean what what is all this stuff why why are we obsessed with all this stuff it, we we would be i think have a better quality of life if we as Whitney was saying, focus on our local community and focus on each other and start and start living more independent lives. But that won't be easy. Not only will it not be easy, there will be attempts. If we if we do that at a sufficient scale, there will be attempts probably by our governments to stop us doing it. So we have we have to we have to face up to the reality that that to, in order to actually resist this, if we are serious about resisting this, then, then we are going to have to overcome and persevere. That that is the way that we that we can change things. And we can because the, their systems are based around us being so 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 much slaves to convenience that they think they can lead us anywhere. If we stop using a lot of their systems, they can't. There's nothing they can do, especially like things like the smartphone and stuff, right? So I think what people should be focusing on, and particularly people that you know are financially wise, like a lot of people that listen to you, Marty, um, start getting your local community use uh, comfortable, if not already utilizing the uh, you know the idea of utilizing a different currency a local currency and it can be anything you want to start with Bitcoin. Cool. But they could try and pull the plug on Bitcoin, illegalize Bitcoin, make it illegal to do whatever. I mean, we're sort of seeing executive orders in the U S right with Biden trying to, to target people with crypto and stuff, including Bitcoin and all of that. Um, so who, who knows how that's going to pan out? Yeah. But I mean, you can use anything really as a currency and humans have done it for a long time and it doesn't have to be fed bucks. Yeah. Well, um, so the, anything you can do, 
in the ideal to get, world to not be on the CBDC. Well, that's why, I mean, I think it's very prescient that we're having this conversation on the day that Ethereum transitioned to Ethereum 2.0, where all the biggest regulated today, huh? exchanges oh. <laughs> uh, control the validation of that blockchain. I, th- I, I, think, I think Bitcoin is the silver bullet on the currency side, but it is going to take a concerted effort by Bitcoiners, myself included, uh, to ensure that it is sufficiently robust to withstand the, the attacks that are undoubtedly going to come from the state. They're, they've already started, like you mentioned. That's why yeah. I'm very focused outside of this show. you got to be prepared for everything, though, is yeah. my point. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You're shaking... I mean, I know that they're, they're already, aren't they, using sustainability as a way to oh, yeah. Bitcoin. Well, that's... You know, a... so, I mean, that's, you know, because of the energy usage in mining it. So, you know, obviously you can't have it because mm. of that. Yeah, fuck them though. I'm gonna go find as many natural gas wells. Uh, as I really can. quick, I'm probably gonna have to run soon because my my little people are home and antsy for mom. Uh, okay. But uh, you and you and Ian, feel free to take it from here. But uh, if you want to follow any of my stuff or read Ian's and my new articles and series, check out unlimitedhangout.com. Sign up for the newsletter unlimitedhangout.com/newsletter. Thanks. And go donate. Yeah, let you guys take go donate here. via Bitcoin. You can donate on Unlimited Hangout. <laughs> you can. Whitney. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you. All right. Take care. See ya. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I don't know much about cryptocurrency, but I mean, as as far as I, oh, you know, I'm I'm slightly invested in it a little bit because it seems like a good idea. But, but um, it, I mean, I'm interested in the technology of it in terms of in, and I think more than perhaps the coins themselves, it's the technology that is that is so promising. The you know the the blockchain technology because as I understand it. You know, if if you have this, it's essentially egalitarian, isn't it? If you've got if you've got these anonymous nodes that are performing the checksums that enable the transactions to be verified, that is that is essentially egalitarian. But I think that the danger comes that you can flip that technology, you can reverse that technology if something like central bank digital currency, which is also based on a blockchain, but rather, but is the intention is to control the nodes. So you have you you control the nodes. So then it becomes basically a financial tracking system. Oh yeah, and that's why I mean, here on this show and everything I do professionally, whether it be mining Bitcoin or I work for a venture fund too, and we invest in Bitcoin businesses, it's solely focused on Bitcoin because there all the other coins and applications of blockchain technology have completely been corrupted by central authorities and central entities uh and like and i would stress that I, again I, I know everybody there's a big meme blockchain not bitcoin blockchain's the innovation but it really is bitcoin that is the innovation it goes back to the energy use which is funny that uh, the governments of the world are attacking bitcoin uh, because of how much energy it uses i think that's actually signal that bitcoin is actually a threat to their power because what Bitcoin does is it leverages the fact that energy use is abundant and widely dispersed globally, and you can contribute to the ledger by tapping into these stranded energy sources that are extremely hard to find and physically shut down. Uh, And that's why I think we're beginning to see a large concerted effort by governments and and regulators to highlight Bitcoin's energy is because uh, at the end of the day, that, that is where their power is going to be receded from is by building the system, by leveraging all these stranded energy sources. And um, 
that's another thing talking about like messaging how do we get through this i think just taking a step back from bitcoin specifically but like going back to energy energy is life like we've described throughout this podcast we would not be where we are today i would not be able to speak into this microphone look at you on this monitor and then after this is recorded distribute it and syndicate it out globally to the world without significant energy use and that's like another uh, sort of theme on the narrative front that i've been very focused on here at this show is just really trying to highlight to people that the climate i i personally don't believe we're in a climate crisis i think we're going to be fine i think climate has changed drastically throughout uh, earth's history and and this is nothing compared to drastic changes that have happened in the past and even if there is a climate crisis which i don't think there is humans are the most adaptable adaptable species that have ever existed on this planet we will be fine and it's really trying to highlight that uh, they're trying to control us by controlling the energy again energy is life it's the basis from which our society is built upon and they're going after that and so it's just trying to begin to incept into the the public that energy is good we're not in a climate crisis and uh, you're being misled by these pied papers yeah no absolutely i mean that's that's you know going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of and then going to the article that we've just that Winnie and I have just written, that is the key fact of it. The fact that it's whether or not you, you accept. I personally, I agree with you. I don't accept the, the climate, so-called climate emergency either. But it doesn't matter because that's not what it's about. What it's about is is managing our every aspect of our lives, particularly energy and food and and our health i mean those those are the things that they that they want to have they're in, they're introducing global financial governance into every act, human activity because they intend to both make profit from it but also you, you they can reverse that polarity and control it through the same mechanism so for example, it, it, when we were looking at the, the health impacts of sustainable development goals, I looked at, I thought I would see what, what the, the health impact of, of this UHC 2030, which is SDG3, introducing a global global health, uh, I can't remember what they call it, the, the, the global health initiative or whatever, the, whatever they term it. But... The idea is that I, I thought I would look at the impact that that has already had on, the, on developing countries. So I thought I'll pick a country at random in Africa and see what the impact is. And I just happened to pick Uganda. I just picked Uganda just, just to start with, just to see where, what the impact was. What I discovered in, about what that impact was in Uganda was enough to write a whole article. <laughs> What what they what they what they've done in Uganda through the COVID through the what I would call the pseudo pandemic through that is they can they they restructured Ugandan debt that's so their debt obligation then they used Ugandan debt obligations to buy in COVID mitigation measures which meant that they suspended a lot of their public health programs on things like malaria now bearing in bearing in mind that in Uganda they didn't have what you could call a pandemic deaths per million of population in uganda from from covid 19 was 74 in the us they were nearly 3200 
So we're talking about a completely different thing. They didn't have that, that pandemic. But nonetheless, they convinced Uganda to go down the COVID mitigation measures at the expense of things like malaria, which killed four times more people than COVID did in, in um, Uganda. So they, th their malaria um, programs were, were laid to one side. Their treatment, their public health system, which actually in Uganda was pretty good. It was a mixed, mixed uh, uh, health economy, a public-private health economy in Uganda. But actually in African, as African uh, developing nations go, their, their public health system wasn't bad. They, uh, that, that was more or less crashed. It almost completely crashed. They didn't have medication for people that were on cancer screen, uh, cancer treatments, all their screening that 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 collapsed. Uh, people couldn't get um, med the medication that they needed. Uh, hospitals shut down. It was just a total disaster. And they then sold them vaccines at three times the market rate that they sold them in Europe. So AstraZeneca was selling in Europe, they were selling their jab, which ended up not being taken up so much in Europe because it was giving people blood clots. They they sold them at $2.18 per unit. But that's how much it cost AstraZeneca or that's how much AstraZeneca charged in Europe. Uganda, it was $7. So they, they and they sold 18 million of these shots at seven million at seven dollars each at a markup of 300 percent 125 million dollars in revenue or euro and whatever yeah and they paid for that and the ugandans had to pay for that through debt restructuring <laughs> so it is a scam like well, it's just it's, epic it's, proportions it's it, of ep epic so that was just the first country in africa that i looked at i just picked that at random and that's what i found Holy shit. We need we need people to wake up and get angry, get even. Yeah. It's Yeah. Yeah, I mean we definitely need people to to, to do that. Well, um Ian, I thank you for the work that you're doing, have done. I mean you so you do you wanna uh, plug the book Pseudo Pandemic? Uh yeah, no, um yeah, uh, so I write at my own blog website, um, which is iandavis.com. It's I A I N uh davis.com, uh spelt the English way. Um I uh, also write for uh, and work for U UK column. I'm fortunate that I have quite a lot of my work syndicated with other people. Very lucky to be able to work with Whitney, Whitney Webber Unlimited Hangout. Uh, off Guardian and people like that quite often um, uh, reshare my work. Uh, yeah, I'm an author as well. I've written two books, A Dangerous Ideology, and my latest book, which I wrote in 2021, was Pseudo Pandemic. Um, Pseudo Pandemic basically is about the 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 information that was available during the pandemic because other publicly available. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to write about it because I wouldn't have known about it um that people weren't told so every everything that that i could catalog i just started cataloging really the all the information that that that, that people were not made aware of during what i termed the pseudo pandemic and to understand why i i termed it the pseudo pandemic 
Uh, you can get my book on my website. It's freely available as a PDF download. Uh, and I only charge really if somebody wants a hard copy because obviously there's a, there's a printing cost for the hard copy. But um, the idea of the global public-private partnership, which is something I know a lot of people have uh, fortunately um, picked up and are, are starting to talk about, um, I really owe that as well to uh, a, a, an excellent researcher in the UK, called a guy called Richard D. Hall, who um, he, he has his, his own site, richplanet.net. Um, he basically, he pulled out my, the, 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 the global governance network that I plotted in my book. He made an initial graph out of that, an initial diagram out of that. And then together we worked together to uh, create what became, uh, you know, a lot of people spoke, spoke about in terms of the global, global public-private partnership. So, and that is a model which I hope people can look at. And if they read the book, I can hope that they'll come to appreciate why I talk about the flow of policy rather than a global government. I, I think that I think that's uh, we're somewhere away from that yet, but that is certainly where we're heading. Yeah, there's this ephemeral governance structure driven by these agendas and uh in terms of the series that you and whitney are working on what can we expect moving forward when's the uh the next piece going to drop what are you guys going to be covering yeah well we're hoping to go through all the sdgs so there's 17 of them so you know we've already more or less i think the set the 17th is probably the the one that sets the scene because that's about the multi-stakeholder partnership and the and, and it's kind of the framework uh, the developmental framework for all the others. So, so we're going to look at all of them. And, and as we said, you know, that there's a, um, an SDG for pretty much everything. So we've got another 16 to write about, but I mean, whether we'll write about each and every one, I don't know, but we're certainly hoping to sort of be putting the articles out, um, you know, every couple of weeks or so, so that people can follow the series and hopefully expose and, and this is what really matters, that we can expose what is actually behind this agenda because it isn't anything like what most people imagine it to be. And, yeah. I, and, and, and it, you know, and, and it's designed that way that one of the things that we mentioned in the first article uh, was what we call untangling the word salad because it's sold to us with all this fluffy rhetoric about inclusivity and resilience and sustainability and, and all these things that sound like wonderful ideas, but dig beneath it. And those, those things quickly evaporate. And what we're left with is hard nosed control mechanisms. That's, that's what this is about. Well, Ian, I want to thank you for your work. It's extremely important. I'm happy that we were able to sit down and discuss all this today. Uh, I, I hope anybody listening out there, please share this episode. We need to get these messages out there. We need people to wake up and understand that there is a massive power grab. And at the end of the day, especially if you have children, like I've got two young sons and just thinking that there is this nefarious cabal of the 0.001% of people out there who just so happen to come up time and time again throughout the decades as working together to produce bad outcomes, just to think that they're out there actively trying to push my sons into some subjugated realities is infuriating. And if you're out there with children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whatever it may be, I hope you, you have a fire lit up in your 
in your body as well because the shit's serious. And um, luckily we have people like Ian and Whitney out there on the front lines trying to wake us all up. So very happy that we were able to do this, Ian. Hopefully we can do it again as you guys continue through the series. Maybe we'll wait uh, one or two more articles in the series and catch up on what you guys covered in those and um, we can continue this conversation. No, I really appreciate it, Marty. Thank you very much. It's very nice to meet you. And um, and I would also say that definitely, you know, cryptocurrency is an important and um, alternative ways of payment are also really important. We are gonna we are gonna need those those kinds of solutions. So so thank you for what you're doing as well. Hey, we're all in this together. Let's Absolutely. Uh, let's go forth and light a fire under everybody's ass. It's time to take control, people before you get controlled. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's all uh, we got. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.